With the rise of generative AI, it became a lot easier to create content. A lot of content. But is that what we need? What if, instead of focusing on creating even more, we spent more time cleaning up outdated and irrelevant content? That's why we at the Newspring champion World Learning Content Cleanup Day on March 21st. Want to join? Then share your tips and tricks using the hashtag WLCCD. Good luck cleaning! Now that AI can write scripts for us, mimic our appearance and our voices, create video with no actual footage being shot, what really is the point of human beings like me? Or you? Welcome to The Learning Hack, a podcast about the people and technologies that are creating the future of learning. I'm John Hellman. Now guess what? Learning is cool. cool. Learning is cool. A hornet's nest of controversy and public fear has been stirred up by the latest developments in AI. As human beings, who quite sensibly don't 100% trust governments and corporations to look after our future welfare, when this latest wave of automation starts to impact job markets in a big way, which will happen, we worry. Worrying is something that humans do, something machines can't do. What are other things that humans do and machines can't that might mean we still have a role, a value, some usefulness in this future world of work? To explore this question, I invited on the show a learning professional who has always seemed to me quite clear-sighted about this fault line between human and machine. Kate Fitzgerald, head of fact, who is he? Hack Facts. Rob Hubbard is founder of Learning Age Solutions, an award-winning provider of digital learning design, development, consultancy and training services in the UK and internationally. LAS is a B Corp with a mission to help organisations realise the full benefits of contemporary learning technologies. Rob is also a keen environmentalist, a judge of the Learning Technologies Awards and chaired the Learning Network for six years. We're at a moment when technological advances are highlighting human potentials and frailties in a way that causes us once again to reevaluate what it is to be human. That's too big a subject to cover in one podcast episode, but it spurred us in this conversation to touch on evolutionary psychology, some important limitations of the human brain, and what exactly Rob means when he talks about human-centred learning. Rob Hubbard, it's great to have you on the podcast. Welcome to The Learning Hack. Yeah, hey John, thanks for having me. Rob, you say that you founded your company LAS in order to take a human-centered approach to skills development, behavior change, and improving people's performance at work. What's that mean in practical terms? And in what ways is it a distinctive and different approach? I'm slightly playing devil's advocate here. <laughs> I, what would a non-human-centered approach to any of those things look like? Uh, because all, they all surely involve human beings, don't they? So, so what's different about a human-centered approach? Yeah. So thinking about being a vendor organization, which LAS is, uh, most people form businesses to make money, um, which is fair enough. You know, everybody's got to earn a crust. And the way to make money really efficiently and effectively is to do the same thing, 
again and again and get to get really good at doing that same thing so you get economies of scale of scale you build your craft and and that that's what you do um, then in learning and development what that means is any problem that somebody comes to you with guess what you've got exactly the solution it just so happens this thing over here that we've got really really good at doing i.e for example the the learning course and you just do that again and again and again now for me that is producer-centered learning um, and this is how learning has always been, you know, the idea of a, of a lecture, people's who, whose preference it is, you know, I'm a lecturer, I know lots about this stuff, and I like the sound of my voice, so I want to get up in front of people, and I'm just going to tell you about it, because that's my my preference for imparting what I have to you. So the human-centred thing comes about where you try to understand the problem or opportunity that you're trying to address, the people involved, the context that they're operating within, the culture, the constraints of the project, and ultimately what you're trying to achieve and designing a solution that achieves you know, what, what that group of humans need to in the context that they're in within the constraints of the project at that time and within that culture. So that's the kind of being human-centred uh, bit. So it kind of comes from just being very curious and wanting to properly fix things rather than just you know, put a, a sticking plaster on it, another another course. You know, we get these opportunities coming in where people want us to uh, redesign a, a course that they've had for donkey's years, which isn't achieving what they want, want it to achieve. They think the solution is to add some more pixie dust to it, you know, some of this cool new technology. And very often it's the case that the course, the training programme, whatever it was, the learning experience wasn't the right way to solve that problem for those people. They haven't been human-centred. They've produced the thing that's their preference to produce. I take your point that the industry can be very, it can be very much of a supply side thing. You know, mm. we got these, we got these courses, we've got these methodologies, we've got these four box matrices that we 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 want to kind of uh, sell to people. So that that's the way we come to it. On the other hand, uh, to turn that round on you a bit, mm. people want to know you've got some answers. Um, you know, they, you're not going to kind of make it up as you go along all the time that, 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 that there is something that comes behind this. Uh, and I'm leading into another question here, which is, well, I know I, you bring ev evolutionary psychology into your practice. Yeah. Um, what elements of evolutionary psychology come into skills development behaviour change, would you say? Because that's where there is, you know, there's kind of existing knowledge, practice, research and so on. How does that work? Well, just before we get into that, just to pick up on yep. people wanting you to have answers. And yeah, we do absolutely get that all the time. It's like, you know, somebody speaking to you, what, what do you mean you don't have the solution? I've been talking to you for 20 seconds. You know, people just wanting like, just, just give me an answer now. Just give me an answer now. If the answer was that simple, you wouldn't have the problem. It already would have been solved. You know, the world is more complex than it's ever been. Organisations are more complex than they've ever been. People's workloads are higher than I've ever known them in all the years I've been in the industry. And these simple solutions, which are, you know, here's my solution, everybody. Here it is. This is the solution that's right for you. I think that's incredibly arrogant. You know, I think it's far better to try and be human centred and design something which is actually going to shift the dial on that. And, and you, you may not get it right first time, 100%, but you might get it 60% right. And then if you can identify that and evaluate that and observe what could make it better, then you can iterate and improve that. Um, I mean, this all comes back, is this sort of curious problem solving 
mindset that I have from my background as being a being an engineer. Um, but to pick up on the kind of evolutionary psychology side of things, you know, this is the idea that the brain has evolved the same way that our bodies have um, over over millions of years. So, you know, the kinds of things that we draw upon are attention. You know, what do we pay we humans pay attention to? So psychologists talk about the four F's. Uh, so fight or flight, which are kind of two sides of the same coin, you know, some, there's some kind of physical threat to us. We either need to respond aggressively to that or we need to run away. Uh, food. So, you know, what's going to give us sustenance um, to, to give us nutrition so that we're strong, so that we can survive. And the fourth F is uh, politely um fornication you can probably guess what the actual other f is uh, is useful but yeah things that relate to um basically pro procreating having offspring and furthering our our genes so our, our brains pay automatic attention to stimuli um in those four areas and you can think of this you know think of any adverts that that stick in your mind and experiences that stick in your mind they're usually hitting one of those four areas now unfortunately for for us in corporate learning that means most corporate learning, if not all corporate learning, to the brain is dull. It's boring. It's really difficult to pay attention to these things. So we need to find other ways that we can do that. Now, for better or worse, uh, our species is at the top of the uh, the pyramid, basically. We are the, the kind of alpha predator uh, on the planet. And we've not done that because we're the biggest or the fastest. We don't have the sharpest teeth. We don't have you know big claws. We've done that because... We can collaborate with others on mass, which means that the sum of a group of us together is more than the than the parts alone. So as part of that, we are highly tuned to to kind of pick up on the emotions of others. If you've ever walked into a room and felt there's a weird atmosphere in here or it feels slightly charged or a bit kind of on edge, we can pick up on things subconsciously before we kind of consciously realise those. We have our antennas open. We, we're designed for connecting to other human beings. And one of the ways that we do that is through emotive experiences. So, yeah, making things more emotive, using techniques like storytelling, making learning more social. These are all techniques we can use. I mean, this for me is the, the great failure of the traditional e-learning market, you know, this idea of learning management system plus e-learning module, that that is all that thou shalt be. And that is an incredibly lonely, solitary learning experience that removes all of that human connection. And you're trying to teach people stuff that doesn't meet any of those four, you know, the four Fs, the things that we pay automatic attention to. So people, you know, but, but it's been sold, as I said at the start, for the ease of production. You know, this is the solution that's easiest for people to produce. They've got the author tools, they've got the processes. So it's been shoved down people's throats for decades. But for me, there's a very small number of problems or opportunities that a traditional e-learning module solves or meets. There are many other different tools that we can and should have in our toolbox as L&D professionals to deploy as needed. Some of them are learning tools, some are communication, other around process and ways of working. Others are kind of looking at the technologies that people have. So it all kind of, kind of fits together there. Talking there about the interface between, you know, humans and and machines, which, you know, obviously this has become progressively in a kind of boiling frog way more and more about what the job is about, isn't it? And it seems we're at a moment where the human limits of human skills and cognitive ability are being questioned, or at least they're being thrown into relief in relation to what looks like new and powerful AI technologies, and uniquely new and powerful, it seems. 
So how are these questions impacting on our view of humanness? Um, and we can talk about attention, we can talk about memory, we can talk about emotion. It just mm. seems to me the more we think about how we work alongside AI, the, the more the differences uh, come up and these these things such as attention and, and care and emotion um, become big questions, as in, you know, are they always useful <laughs> to mm. us? Do they, do they hold us back or, you know, how, how do we fit together with the machines? Mm. Depends if you view our part as a, a small cog in the machine, just there to do our part or, or as kind of more, more than that, um, really. I mean, I think it's it's interesting things that I'm observing, um, like music, for example. You know, the cost of music, streamed music, to all intents and purposes, is basically zero. Um, you know, you can get it off the internet, off streaming services. But if you want to go and see music live and have an experience which is never to be repeated socially with a whole group of people you pay hundreds of pounds for the privilege of doing that it's a really kind of you know it's, it's an amazing experience and you get so much more than just listening to the music you know you can digitally you can go and hear that piece of music played perfectly every time you could watch a video even of those people performing it even at a live concert you could watch a video of that with headphones on you get a certain level of of immersion there but what you won't get is that one of a kind experience with a whole load of other human beings and for me what you're paying for there is you're paying for imperfection and i think that's what will come to value more you know to be human is to be imperfect um, digital is the way that we can get perfection. Things can be made incredibly perfect using using various digital tools and emerging technologies. And there's a place for that. And the place for that is the mass market, uh, low cost, you know, out to everybody. And, and there's value and there's use in that. But I think we'll, we'll value more those imperfections that come from a real human being, a real human, you know, it'd be like um, uh, uh, antiques, for example, you know, an awful lot around the value of an antique is its provenance, it's where it came from, it's the story that that piece tells you, it's who created that and when and why they did it and the skills they needed and where they were in their life at the point they did that. The same with great pieces of art as well. And I think for anything that we that we create, that provenance is going to be, actually, I'll take the back, not anything we create, some of the things that we create, that provenance is going to be valued even more when AI and computer-generated perfection is available for anybody, that one of a kind, you know, I'm, I'm going to see uh, the band The Smile at the start of next month. You know, it's uh, Tom York and uh, Johnny Greenwood from uh, Radiohead, uh, one of the yeah. best drummers, uh, I think, that's around at the moment, playing with, uh, with an orchestra. I mean, that is just going to be absolutely mind-blowing. I can watch that on YouTube. I can listen to it at, on, on Spotify. You know, that is going to be a... a a million times more Im impactful experience on me personally because I'm there sharing it with other humans. But so is that, that just about imperfection? I mean, if something's out of tune, it, it doesn't sound very good. I mean, you know, you don't necessarily want music to be perfect because, you know, perfect is the enemy of the good and all the rest of it. Isn't it more kind of about connection, authenticity, um, the, the the kind of communal sense you get at a concert of of, of experiencing emotions along with a lot of other people who are having very similar emotions and that 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 whole kind of vibrating sensory experience of a concert it, it it's, it's got to be about more than imperfection 
It is about more than imperfection. You are you are right, but um, I wouldn't kind of devalue the imperfection or think that it's uh, that it's necessarily a bad thing. You know, if you went along to a concert and they were playing very badly out of tune, fair yeah. enough. What you're looking for is different interpretations, different uh, kind of emphases on different parts of the music. You know, I've I've started um, playing at jam sessions now. So I was a drummer for many years when I was younger. I was in lots of bands, and uh, you know that was a really big part of my life. Um, but then with the business, with young kids, life was too busy to be able to do that. I've started going to these jam sessions, you know, a load of middle-aged uh, musicians get together and we just make stuff up, you know, and, there, and there's loads of imperfections and bits that sound a bit weird and cranky and bits where people are out of tune. But then there'll also be bits where we all come together and play something that just sounds pretty bloody amazing, frankly. And and those imperfections and the journey of getting to that is all part of the experience. You know, we're not going, we're not playing other people's music. We're not going along and playing cover versions, for example, other people's tracks. We're making it up as we go along. I mean, I think that's a really good metaphor for for working these days. You know, we all we all have skills and abilities, and then we come together in these teams and we work on these projects or work for these organisations. And you're improvising. You know, you had a podcast on this. This yeah. Piece. So you're making me think of. Um... Uh, our yeah. last episode with Belina Raffi talking about yeah. skills of improvisation. And yeah, that, that's very interesting, I think. And, and we have a potentially have a, a, a guest coming on to a couple of guests coming on to talk about um, uncertainty yeah. as well as, as being an important thing. So, so to kind of bring it back to evolutionary psychology and uh, just chuck another ology in um, neuroscience, uh, we, we, we're talking about attention, particularly. We've we, we've come to learn a lot about the way that human attention functions for for good and ill. Um, uh, there was some interesting stuff from Hannah Critchlow. I heard on a podcast of people who like numbers. The human brain hmm. is made up of eighty six billion nerve cells joined together by eighty six trillion connections. Um, information is constantly coming in. So, you know, hmm. you walk the street or you're at a concert listening to music. It's thought that 11 billion bytes of data per second is reaching our senses every single second. Mm. But we're only consciously aware of something in the region of 30 to 40 bytes of data per second. Mm. I mean, you know, this is kind of reducing it to numbers, but but that kind of contrast, 11 billion bytes coming in, only conscious of 30 to 40 bytes, our attention is incredibly selective, isn't it? Yeah, it has and to that, be. Yeah, and um, John, for fake kind of pronounce his name says that's our superpower that selectivity but it also tricks us all the time because every time we you know our ability to kind of focus and ignore large amounts of what's going on around us is our power to being focused focus is something you must do yeah. with a lot as a trainer trying to get people to be to be focused but at the same time it, it, it kind of does open us up to self-delusion in that we ignore stuff all the time and it, it Often not till it's too late we realise we've been ignoring terrible things going on us around us, you know, on on the news or whatever, mm. and just not being conscious of that. So, so that kind of two-edged sword of attention is something that that is uniquely human, and and machines don't have. My my to to link that into what you were just saying, mm. I think what we're doing when we're improvising is playing with that. That that, or that 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 kind of muscle of attention, because you have to listen very carefully to what other people are doing and and respond to it. It's a way of kind of broadening us out to 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 improvise. I mean, does any of that 
resonate. Mm. Race I mean, there are, there are some humans that can't do that filtering. Um, uh, you know, people who are on the autism spectrum, you know, this is one of the issues that their brain doesn't um, doesn't kind of filter stuff down. They've just got huge amounts of sensory input coming in all, all of the time. And it's or else they, they imperfectly, yeah. you know, by our standards, filter it because there must be some kind of filtering going on. But but, but the confusion of that is emotionally overwhelming. And, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Very debilitating. So we absolutely have to have to focus on things. Um, other, otherwise, we wouldn't be, a, you know, it's the back to our the things that we pay attention to. And our, there's also the um, Sardgad's uh, four Darwinian drives, you know, to, to survive, um, to procreate, to reproduce. Um, the third one is kin selection. So prioritizing, protecting people who are part of our kin, part of our family. And the fourth one, which I find very interesting, is um, kind of altruistic giving, the helping of others, because we operate within a society. And if we help others, then they're more likely to, to help us. Um, but you can see how we need to, just, just to survive, we have to hugely prioritize the things that we pay attention to and that we that we take action upon the things that we're more likely to pay attention to is things that are unusual because those could be a threat you know that's something that we haven't seen before we don't understand that that's something new is is it a threat or is it a resource or you know what, what is that so we kind of pay pay attention to those um but yeah the kind of, the kind of creative um idea of opening your attention out to things i think that there is you know when we do we do a load of teaching around creativity and the, the process that i use is the one that john cleese recommends and this is where you know first of all you immerse yourself in whatever the thing is that you need to do so you spend a period of time hours or a few days or whatever really focusing on that and you let ideas come and you kind of capture them as they do and then you back off for a while and you do something else and he describes it as just letting your mind gently kind of rest against something, rest against the problem or the opportunity or the task you've got to do. And then you, you capture ideas as, as they come and you, you kind of you give yourself time and, and space and headspace to do that and revisit to generate those those ideas. Now, that that's not necessarily something that you're doing with other people. So, you know, I think for me, creativity, I can be very creative with a group, but also I can be very creative on my own. I find what works best is combining the two at various stages of the creative process. Um, and also I'm kind of opening myself up to other influences and closing myself down at different times. So if I want to generate ideas for things, usually I like to do that first of all, just with the thoughts that I come up with. Um, then I like to work with other people. Then I like to look at what other people have done, what other solutions there are out there, so that I'm not kind of piggybacking or jumping on something which solves a problem which, is, which isn't quite the one that I'm trying to solve. Um, so it's that kind of diverging and converging uh, kind of approach. But then for that kind of the iterative, creative improvement of something, which is where you kind of, you know, you, you, you mess with it and focus on it much longer than anybody else would. It's quite good to be a bit kind of closed off from the outside then and inward looking and inwardly focused. Um, so, yeah, I'm not sure that relates to opening filters and letting more information in. I think it's more kind of purposefully directing attention at different things whether that's kind of very specifically on what you're what you're working on or things that are a kind of broader sweep outside for, for inspiration the learning hack podcast is supported by learning news the learning sector's newswire rob and his team are good friends of the podcast and we really value the help and advice we've had from them and they do a great job 
very latest news from around the learning sector, for interviews with learning leaders, the latest from learning sector vendors and features on workplace learning, go to learningnews.com. Does mindfulness or meditation come into your practice at all? Because that that is all about kind of attention, isn't it? And mm. and, and and looking carefully at, at what your attention is doing, and 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 perhaps it, it it sounded like what you were talking was very much in the same kind of wheelhouse in terms of yeah. You know, I mean, step I, back, resting your attention against it without yeah. engaging. Yeah, I mean, I did meditate for years, um, and it was so successful that I just stopped doing it. It's one of those stupid things that you, <laughs> this this is great. But I, I do try to just have like quiet time. I mean, I, I get a lot of joy observing one of our cats. She's very good at just sitting and looking, just sitting, just looking at stuff, not thinking of anything. Well, maybe she is. Maybe she's hatching like well domination plans or whatever. Yeah. But you know, it's that kind of quiet, just quiet sitting, not really thinking of anything, not really looking at anything, just kind of sitting there, which I know I'm not kind of purposefully trying to meditate when I'm doing that. But what you are doing is clearing the clutter um, out of your mind. I mean, we do on one of our programs that, that we run, we're doing this longitudinal study on people's creativity. So we've had, I think it's like 93 people now have responded to a, a survey about creativity. Then we analyze the, the survey results actually live in the session. And um, one of the questions is about when in the day are you at your most creative? And the shape is really interesting. So people are most creative early in the morning, then creativity dips down basically in your working hours. And then when you're back home at the end of the day and you've, and you've finished all of your tasks and the kids have gone to bed and you've had dinner or whatever, people's creativity peaks again. And people have said, wow, that's interesting. You're at your least creative when, when you're at work. <laughs> and actually, you know, what, what we think the group thinks it is, it, it's to do with mental clutter. You know, when you wake up in the morning, you've had a bit of a reset. Your brain isn't full of all those thousand and one things that you need to do and the huge to-do lists and all of that. And ideas will come. You know, that, that technique I talked about with John Cleese's approach, my best ideas come just as I'm waking up in the morning. You know, if I've really focused on something and working on a uh, on an idea at the moment, you know, quite often when I'm in the shower, just ideas will just come. My, my subconscious will just go, and here you go. Yeah, here you go, Rob. You demonstrated to me with your focus for many days and hours that this thing is important. I've been working on this in the background and and here's a solution. I go, wow, th thanks very much for that subconscious. Or is it my unconscious? I'm never quite sure. Yeah. And literally just note it down. And that process has been so successful for me. Yeah, works really well. Well, isn't that many people have had that experience of, of kind of working on a problem, thinking about a problem, not getting anywhere. And then just one morning you wake up and it's there. It's yeah. just kind of it, it, as if it is presented to you. And yeah, well, that's so interesting, you know, the early kind of the, the, those early hours on first waking, because, of course, you haven't been entirely not present. You've been you've been dreaming. You've involved in this been involved in this process of dreaming, which, you know, people it, it's still slightly mysterious, but it may have something to do with the brain shunting bits of information about from one filing cabinet to another if you want to be reductive about it. Yeah, and you come out of this as you as you say with a fresh mind and a, and a lot less lots of distractions. Can I kind of pull you back to that um, idea of compare the compare and contrast job with how machines think that we all have to do now? Um, you know the the value of humanity in the workforce for a long time as, as there's been a progressive process of 
automation throughout history is that machines have tended to take over the you know the grunt work the um the the kind of simple and manual tasks and as this goes on we kind of you know as they take over the lower floors the humans move up to the upper floors and okay the machines are doing all the difficult stuff we can focus on being creative and using our wonderful powers of thought well Mm. now the the machines are up there in the top floor with us and Mm-hmm. showing that they 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 sometimes are better at judging things and yeah. noticing things and so on than we are how are you in your practice how are you dealing with helping people through that the readjustment that that inevitably causes to you know that 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 machine thinking now comes to play a part in running an organization yeah I mean, although you can achieve perfection with uh, computers, you can always much, you know, incredibly quickly now achieve absolute rubbish. Um, and the difficult is, difficulty is the absolute rubbish is increasingly difficult to tell from the stuff which is actually really good because it looks just as good as the, as the stuff that's really, you, you can't, you know, it's difficult for, for you know, people that haven't, haven't been doing this for decades or actually or using the stuff for real to know that actually what it's teaching is is a load of dross you know i was i was quite disheartened to see a a linkedin article from somebody in the industry um that i'd hope would know better and that i that i really quite respect and that was talking about their new product and um talking about learning styles and it's like okay you've clearly not written that so either that's a machine or somebody junior has written it and it's just kind of gone out without you thinking about it and, and to the uninitiated they would see nothing wrong in that article at all that's kind of you know uh, reinforcing the these myths so you know i think one of the the roles of the human is to be to to learn your craft so that you can be discerning so that you can spot when something is very convincing looking rubbish basically and be able to identify when actually that's only 60% good enough. And in this instance, we need 90% good enough. And, you know, we've got that we've developed the skills and expertise to move the dial by that 30%. Now, the real challenge is that the way that you learn that craft is doing your time in the trenches, working your way up, doing the basics, you know, doing all of that kind of mental grind work. Now, if those stepping stones to achieving that mastery have been automated and removed by technology, how, how do you get there? Yes, you know, that's that's the really challenging thing that you've got these kind of career pathways that existed before and the way of learning your craft. I mean, just to go back to music again, you know, if you look back on any any musician or any band that have been successful, every single one in their origin story have something where they just played three gigs a day for like nine months or a year or whatever to learn their craft and get really, really fantastic at it. You know, now with the lack of music venues and there isn't really a a business model in music now, you know, it's so difficult for people to make the money. There isn't that way to kind of learn your craft and and get to those, you know, the the levels of the the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and, you know, to learn your craft to that extent. And I think we're going to see that in a whole load of of different um you know fields of of uh undertaking you know different different jobs different roles and that is yes it's a, it's a worrying law isn't it because there is this thing that um one of the things that people do when they when they're learning their chops in law is that they have to go through do a lot of grunt work going through a lot of old case law yeah uh, and prepare a brief for a, a, a barris or whatever based on plowing through all this stuff um and now it it, it seems that um AI can do that for them. Mm. And there is a kind of worry that people won't have gone through that 
that, that stuff. They won't have that kind of back memory or that, that kind of muscle memory of habit, if you like, to use a contentious term, um, yeah. of, of having waded through all that stuff in, in the background of the way that they make judgments. So they, mm -hmm. they, there is a step that gets missed. So one, one can see that in a variety of professions and yeah, and and, and metiers. Yeah, con consultancy. You know, now that we've got these enterprise co-pilot AIs that are coming in that will be yeah. private to the enterprise data that know all of your products and all of your services and can look outside at your competitors and know specifically the stuff that you as an individual have been working on, the documents you write, the emails that you send, the transcripts of the um, Zoom calls that you're in, you know, all, all of this stuff. Like there's a whole load of like mid to low level consultant tasks that just the co-pilot's going to be able to do. I think there's still going to be a need for um, expert consultants, probably more around human interaction, you know, where, where you're doing things with other humans in, in real time. Um, and certainly to provide the human in the loop, to provide that oversight and the things that the machines are doing. But, you know, mm. that's a place where how do you go from being someone that how wants do the experts to get to hone yeah. their expertise? How do you jump that gap? You know, that's a that's yeah. interesting. I think there's kind of two ways of looking at it, I think, which is one is that one thing I'm always aware of with technology is the more you get to work with it, the more expert you get at using a particular tool, right. the more you know what its downsides are and where it's going to kind of let you down. And I, I noticed this with, with 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 kind of coders and techies of various sorts, musicians about their instruments. You know, you it, it, it's your awareness of the, the kind of shortcomings of technology, which are now you allow you to use it um, effectively. So as we start to work with ChatGPT and generative AI and so on as an everyday co-pilot type of thing, we're starting to get that sense of where it lets you down. You know, I, I use it a lot. Um, I, I think I mentioned before we start to turn the tape on that I've had an experience recently where I, I realized ChatGPT was gaslighting me, mm -hmm. giving me a load of stuff that was, you know, completely wrong. Having in, in the first iteration of the, 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 the dialogue given me completely reliable, good information that will suddenly turn on sixpence. Now that I know it'll do that, you know, that builds up your kind of, your hoard of experience about how to use the tool. So one way of looking at this is that we learn how to use the tools, we learn what their shortcomings are, and that kind of safeguards us. We're still in control, in a sense. The other way, the other, a big anxiety is like the one with self-driving cars, is that, you know, the self-driving, the autonomous vehicle makes all the decisions, but the humans have to be able to step in to mm -hmm. evade an accident. Well, we, you know, we know that doesn't quite work because if you're not involved in the process of driving the thing, you're you're relaxed, you're lying back, you're reading a book. Suddenly, the the car veers towards running somebody over. Um, in a split second, you know, yeah. you're not in the the kind of active mode of control to be able to to head that off. And I think that's where a lot of wor the worries come. That where would you fall on? Yeah, your example of being uh, gaslighted by ChatGPT, you know, you were fortunate in that you had the experience and expertise to recognize yeah. when it started doing that. But for people that are less experienced, they're not going to know. 
when that happens. So you're going to get stuff put out very convincingly that looks, yeah, this is this is one of my issues with the fetishization of data. You know, everybody's going nuts for data. You know, this is our new roles in humanity. We're data cows. That's what we exist to do. Generate data for other people to use. Apparently it's for our own good, you know, that we track literally every step, every heartbeat, every exercise that we do, brushing our teeth, sleep, you know, all of this data. Where does it go? Well, it's used to to sell stuff, uh, sell stuff to us. Um, we, we've looked at this, you know, in our projects, we undertake user research. So um, we have traditionally manually analyzed that data, had a real human looking at that data, looking for patterns in the user research data and surfacing insights that we then base our recommendations and whatever we go on to, you know, to, to build based on that. So that's a really good use case potentially to get AI involved because we could um, have a much larger data set that we access. We could use uh, AI to analyze that data and to surface insights that we could base design decisions on. But if that data is flawed, so if it's excluded people from the audience that should be in there, maybe it's people with disabilities, maybe it's women, you know, those are two groups that are largely ignored in, in data sets, then that we could have very clever people asking exactly the right questions of a very clever AI with a huge, great big data set, which will then give us emphatic answers that sound very convincing that are fundamentally wrong because they are biased because of the, the data set that it's working on. You know, this is my big fear and why I think that we need we need the human in the loop and we do need the people with that expertise like you had with ChatGPT to know, yeah, that's bullshit, that is. You're making that up now. And I know not to trust that. But as we discussed just earlier, getting to have that ex that level of expertise now, where those intermediate steps have been removed, how how are you gonna how are you gonna get there? You're gonna have lots of inexperienced people using this stuff. Very clever computers, always right, you know, spit, spits out these results for you, which sound completely plausible, and you base business decisions on, strategy decisions on, hiring and firing decisions on, all of this stuff, and it's just fundamentally wrong you know that's a real a real challenge it's making me think of the um the, the postmasters scandal i mean this is a very uk yeah. based thing but uh, you know people in the in in other parts of the world may be aware of this because it is an enormous scandal it's the over dependence on the horizon mm. system that the post office had put in um in the initial phase of it i mean the later phases of it the cover-up there's yeah. it's just wickedness and evil involved in that. I don't see how you can really say anything else than that. But the the early part of it, there was some genuine over-dependence on the technology. People felt the technology couldn't be wrong. That's right. And I think that's where we're heading again. You know, that that is the issue, that we, we will be our lives. I mean, <laughs> I was just creating a graphic before this. You know, I've got this, I'd like to get a T-shirt printed up with slave to the algorithm because that's yeah. kind of what we are now. You know, that that's there's going to be so many aspects of our life, many of which are already decided by AI. And this stuff is all in the background. It's all in the back office. We don't know why suddenly we're being turned down for credit for whatever reason or why we haven't been shortlisted for that for that job interview, you know, because it's this black box um, approach to it. And, and I think it's really tempting not to have the human in the loop because to do to have that rigor a you need a really experienced person and b it's a, it's a lot of work to do that you know to be able to do that it's really tempting just to go oh computer says this it's computer's really clever algorithm is really clever let's go with that you know and um, there are there are kind of huge societal risks there i mean i, I do kind of um despair somewhat of of linkedin um 
because the stuff the stuff that you get on there around around AI, it's so kind of like it's at two ends of a of a scale. You know, one is like it's going to be amazing. Come one, come all. What what are your reservations about ethics, methics? You know, this is just this is the brave new world. Everybody jump right in say the people who are selling ai products and services you know and then at the other end of the scale you've got the oh my god it's going to eat my job your job it's the end of the world as we know it i've seen the matrix i know how this ends you know and of course it's not it's it's kind of somewhere somewhere in between yeah. and it's all to choose and make judgments on where on that scale we end up you know some people will be trying to push it up to one end of the scale where it's you know, as we said, digital, low volume, uh, sorry, high volume, low cost, you know, high profit, very little human contact, you know, highly automated, because that makes the maximum amount of money for an organization or for an individual. And at the other end of the scale, you've got the stuff which is much more kind of uh, high, high touch human contact, less scalable. Um, and I, I would argue more human basically. There's there's attractions to them both. I'm not saying either end of the scale is in, inherently mm. not. But I think we need to be careful and purposeful about where where we use which which approach, you know, and, and how kind of, you know, experience with the GPs now, you know, the doctors, they do an incredibly difficult job, but their job is to be an encyclopedia of everything you could possibly have that's wrong with you. And to remember all of these articles and all of these different, um, you know, ailments that people have had and all of these different studies. And it's like, wow, first line GP, that's an amazing job for an AI. But actually, if I was going in with something I was genuinely worried about, I want to see a human. I want to see a real human in person in the same room. I want to walk in. I want them to be able to talk to me and, and see how I'm doing and ask me how I'm doing. Mm. And there is hope there that we can shift some of the burden for the, you know, the little easy kind of automated stuff and use the technology to do that. But then keep the human there front and center, not just in the loop, front and center for the really important, impactful stuff. But it's just there's always these pressures of like make more money, save costs, more efficiency that tends to push it to the automation end. And I think we need as a, as a species, we need to be very kind of mature in the way that we approach this stuff and not just run after the money. Yeah, that's what I hope. So vigilance is needed there, I, I think you're saying. Mm. Um, what other advice would you give? to somebody who wants to maximize their usefulness in an organization today, if we're going to put it that way, given the likely impacts, as you see it, of current technology developments on the way we work. I mean, is it we constantly having to be constantly having to be vigilant, listening to experts who 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 know enough about how the stuff doesn't work? What mm. what kind of advice do you give? You've got to use the tools. You know, not not using the tool, it's just not an option. You know, if, if you, you can't are, just get pray, afraid and back off and say, no, I'm like the people who say, no, I'm not doing social media anymore ever because it's too horrible. And you, you can't you can't do that. You have to you have to kind of take it on your terms. I mean, I have this battle with social media. I fundamentally think it's overall a really harmful thing to our society. However, it's a huge means of communication. It's one one that I have to uh, engage in. But I, I kind of try and do it on my terms and try not to get too too caught up in it. But yeah, you, you can't just put your head in the sand and ignore these technologies, because if if you do, then you're going to get sideswiped by it. You know, I think you need to uh, approach it in a human centered way, you know, understand the implications of, of using it, 
learn about, as you say, what's it good for and where is it where is it weak, and try and kind of plot your course. Um, because if you don't, then you're going to get the rug pulled out from underneath you. Um, and the other, you know, the other thing is thinking about people's career and even what they study. You know, we've got our boys are 15 and 17 now. You know, one's uh, off to university, one will be in a, in a few years. But thinking very carefully about actually what they study, you know, what topics. And I, I kind of I sort of hate that. You know, I hate that they can't just go and say, you know what, I want this, this particular subject is just the thing that I'm really passionate about. And that's what they do. It, it has to be a very kind of transactional, like, right, okay, it needs to be something I can get a good job doing. It needs to be a good investment of, of you know, the, their money um, to, to do it. And, um, you know, it's going to have a have an effect on the arts, really. It'd be, one, be really interesting to see that the change over time of the numbers of applicants for different university subjects. And that gives you a bit of a kind of view of, of where things might be heading. But yeah, you've got, you've got to use the tool. That's happening already. I mean, we, we do hear reports of this, that, that kind of like, you know, English literature is going down and so on. Yeah. Um, it's having an impact that you're, you're, you're completely right. That, that very kind of career orientated idea of what education is for is, is tending to, to, to drive certain subjects to be kind of pushed to to the margin yeah and we're, we you know we're yet to find this nirvana where you know I'm, I'm sure uh the people that brought the looms in said no no it'll be fine because we're going to save you all of that dreadful dangerous noisy difficult work so you can just like hang out and go boating maybe sip some cocktails or whatever and with, with every <laughs> bit of uh you know technology that comes through that that's how it's sold to us you know that's what we're told uh when are we going to reach that nirvana yeah, but you're making it sound like that's very kind of, you know, the, the the capitalists come in and they say all this stuff and this is going to say, you know, make life a lot easier for you. It, it The people who have, have perpetuated that myth of how machines are going to make us into the Eloy and we'll sit by the riverbank sipping cocktails have tended to be on the progressive side. They, they, Oscar Wilde was one of these people, you know, at the turn of the century saying machines are going to do all the work. And we're just going to kind of swan around in velvet jackets, making mm. great art, you know. And that theme has been repeated again and again. But it does tend to come from the progressive side rather from the capitalists. Capitalists just say, oh, here's some work. Here's loads of money. Don't you want to do it? Yeah. I guess maybe because the progressive side, that's the lifestyle that they yearn towards. And yeah. they don't want to be kind of do, doing this. Guardian reading graduate Ramonas. <laughs> yeah. Like you and me. Yeah, like us. But, you know, I, I think it's, I mean, what what a time to be alive, honestly. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I can remember when the internet appeared and look at look at us now. I mean, it is kind of mind-boggling, really. I mean, I'm a lifelong um, fan of hard sci-fi, so I don't know if you're familiar with that. So it's not like laser guns and Star Wars and things like that. It's about, you know, it's, it's a way of, um, I think of it as like future philosophy. It's kind of extrapolated from what we've got and thinking, well, it's a few examples. You talk about what Ursula Le Guin or yeah, well, Expanse um, or Expanse. Foundation. Yeah, the Expanse is a great one. I'm just rewatching yeah. at the moment. But you know, looking at how we colonised various uh, colonised uh, countries around the world and how we kind of expanded and then extrapolating that out into space with all of the kind of um, you know the, the kind of 
political pressures that there are and the resource pressures and and all of these things are you know really really kind of fascinating so like watching this you know our, our version of reality now which essentially is like um it's like an episode of black mirror you know it's like this has all been written by charlie brooker you know he must be wondering what what on earth he's going to spend his time doing next but with all of this stuff that's going on there's there's loads of opportunities to make things better you know i kind of you know, I, I studied 30 years ago sustainability. You know, I learned about wind farms and wave power and biomass and nuclear and, you know, all, all of this good stuff. And in those 30 years, we've only got more and more solutions, more and more things we can do to make the world better for everybody. They exist. They're there, you know, and that, that I think is incredibly kind of, you know, that makes me feel optimistic. And now that People are kind of standing up. You've got movements like B Corp. You know, we're a B Corp. There's like how many thousand of us uh, worldwide? You know, a lot of companies that, yeah, fair enough. There is a load of greenwashing going on, but there's only so long you can keep just saying the green stuff without doing it before it becomes actually more cost effective to be doing the green sustainable stuff as well, particularly when your customers decide to choose um, a more kind of uh, you know, low carbon, sustainable product from a different uh, provider than yours. So I kind of see all of these changes coming about. And I do think things are going to get better. You know, I, I, I really do. Um, but I think they're going to get worse for a bit first. And I think it's going to be a, a bumpy old few years. But I, I think that good good sense and good people and good judgment will win out. And it's amazing that we've got the tools that we've got now, that this stuff can be amplified and it, and it can be done. And I, I think we are beginning to see a shift in the dial on it. Um, so, yeah, I'm kind of quietly optimistic. I'm also very cynical of, uh, you know, things that are presented to me as like, this is the, you know, this is the next amazing thing. This is the, you know, this is what's going to save us all or, or, or whatever. But yeah, quietly optimistic for human nature, I think. We've spoken We've spoken there for from the employee side of view, as it as it were, you know. Because I asked the question, how should people, um, you know, what, what should people be thinking and and feeling in order to kind of make them able to function in the in this situation? From the other side of that question, for people who are working in people functions specifically, you know, if you're kind of in L and D or teaching, training of some kind or HR. How do you think they should work and plan to maximise their positive impact in the in this situation for the people that they on whose behalf they work? Yeah, so I certainly would not be all about output. You know, don't be all about the number of training programmes that you run or the amount of content you produce or you know courses or videos or whatever. Because the cost of producing those, not the face to face training, but the digital assets, is basically tending to zero. So, you know, don't be all about that. Be all about the analysis, you know, be all about the value add, be all about understanding what's the problem or opportunity that we're trying to address here. Who are the people involved? You know, how does this impact on them? Uh, what are the behaviours that we want them to adopt? What might be the blockers to changing behaviours? You know, the, the kind of the, the toolbox that learning and development professionals have available to them has suddenly got loads wider and loads more powerful, but they need to think more like, L&D consultants, you know, they need to have that curious problem solving mindset, because if you're all just about production, guess what? The tools are going to be doing that really quickly. And that's great because you don't have to spend your time doing that now. You can be genuinely solving the challenges, helping 
uh, your organization deliver on its strategy and meet its goals and demonstrating that you're doing that and that you know this is the change that people like you know laura overton's been talking about for what is it probably 20 years now yeah and it's needed more now than than ever you know it really is and it can feel like a big step for internal l d teams to take but you can take smaller steps to get you there and i think that that really is, is what you have to do don't be about the output be about the the problem solving, you know, be about the analysis. And then the output is whatever the output needs to be. And the tools can help you make that output even more quickly than ever before. But make sure, you know, this was, I wrote something on this the other day. You know, if you're doing a large scale learning project, um, particularly digital learning, the biggest cost to that is the time cost of people going through it. You know, okay, you might be able to, I saw this awful advert on LinkedIn for a video tool, generative video tool, where uh, a supposed uh, user said, this is just going to be amazing for us. We've got 300 PowerPoint slide decks that nobody looks at. Now I can really create quickly create those into 300 videos. It's like... That nobody looks at. No, don't do that. You know, why, why not try and work out why nobody looks at those PowerPoints? Are they out of date or not relevant or uh, not pitched at the right level or is the language confusing or don't they you know give people what why aren't people accessing that design a different solution you know Lassie who and where do you go to for your own knowledge and information and learning um who do you look up to and who do you look out for yeah um I tend to look look outwards really so um for I love, I love attending conferences and events. Um, I tend I tend to find I get the most from the keynotes. Um, I take tons of notes when I go to these things. I don't uh, reams and reams of, of digital notes. Uh, but I also go along to these events with specific questions in mind that I want a kind of view on or an answer to. Um, and I spend my time when I meet people, I just ask them those questions. So I always come look, come away with a whole load of really interesting stuff. Also, there's just the people that you just sort of bump into and you get chatting about and, you know, can can kind of change your mind. So within L&D, much more the kind of conferences um, and, and attending those. Uh, LinkedIn, not so much. Everybody on LinkedIn is selling something. They're selling their company's products or services, their products or services, or them as an individual. Or their you know, podcast, to- yeah. Sorry, culpa. <laughs> you know, or, or whatever. And that's fine. It's a sales and marketing platform. You know, that that's okay. But I find the fact that you have to, everything that you read, you have to go, so who wrote that? And what's their interest in this thing? And then you have to view it through that lens. I, I find just quite tiring. I mean, it's also, you spend too much time on LinkedIn. It just makes you hyperventilate. You know, it's like all this stuff like AI this, AI that, and oh my God, you know, it's like we all need a kind of just a, a some sort of refuge. We can all come together and like talk about kittens or something, you know, to have a bit of refuge from that. So yeah, not not really LinkedIn, um, but I do go to like the How to Academy talks. Do you know those? Oh, I've heard of them, yeah. Yeah, so they're kind of like longer form uh, TED talks. They tend to be presentational. They're around about half an hour. Basically, everybody there is selling a new book but they are kind of literally world leading experts in all kinds of different fields really interesting so those are those are brilliant get a lot from those and then i just i read books really slowly i don't read a great deal but i read kind of like carefully i try to read a little think a lot try to join the dots that's basically it yeah what are, what are you reading at the moment um i'm reading uh, <laughs> a book by professor david nutt on uh, all of the um kind of medicinal um 
benefits and the ways that hallucinogenic drugs and uh, what are currently illegal drugs and substances, uh, mm -hmm. how powerful they are, and sort of understanding why all of the research on that was shut down by, by the states in the 60s, largely to do with the Vietnam War um, and the protests against that. Um, and just all of that, they're now starting to free things up a bit and they're starting to use these uh, various compounds uh, to treat like long term people with PTSD that haven't responded to anything else, people with long term depression, uh, people with um, substance dependency. Um, and it's it's absolutely fascinating because that really gets into how, how the brain works and how these substances basically let you it defrags the brain. And then with guidance from a professional, you can break these harmful cycles of thought. You know, a, a lot of harm is done to individuals where they get stuck in these cycles of thought, which can be negative self-talk or or things about them or their their behaviours or or whatever. Um, taking these substances with guidance is a way that you can break these cycles and reprogram them. You know, re redefine what those should be, and they, it's been incredibly helpful to a lot of people. And now they've got well. I say now they've had the evidence for years, but now they're starting to free up the ability for people to use these. So, you know, that's all to do with the brain. It's all to do with behavior. Um, and it's I, I, I get an awful lot from reading around our subject and, and kind of taking things in from there rather than like just going L&D, 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 you know. Mm. Uh, interesting. Microdosing as we speak. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> I have worked with people who are microdosing there. It could be a bit alarming. Thank yeah. you very much for that, Rob. I, I I feel we could talk all day, all day, and I I hope we'll have a a kind of part two at at, at some point, and I hope to bump into you uh, on the the conference circuit at some point this um, yeah, this year and and the next year. Thank you very much for that. It's a really interesting discussion. Yeah. Cheers, John. I enjoyed it. Real pleasure. Thank you. That's all on the Learning Hack podcast for this time. Many thanks to our guest and to our sponsors. The Learning Hack is among the top 5% most listened to podcasts globally, according to Listen Notes, we found out. But it depends for its existence solely on sponsorship and your Patreon contributions. If you want us to continue holding these excellent conversations about learning, it's you who said they're excellent, not us. Let's have a chat about your company sponsoring or sign up to patreon.com slash learninghack for a piddlingly small amount of money, get transcripts, text summaries, and early access. Keep us alive. Until next time. Stay curious, learning people. Now I finally get it.